Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Just this morning, this very morning, we see parents like Andrea Miller, whose daughter Everly found a packet of fentanyl at her elementary school playground in Nanaimo. No parent should have to live in fear for their child's life because they're going to stumble across drugs and dangerous drugs like fentanyl in their own playgrounds. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. I was the voice of official opposition leader Kevin Falcon in the B.C. legislature this week. The fallout and aftermath of drug decriminalization in B.C. It kicked in on January 31st, 2.5 grams. That is the legal possession limit of heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, crystal meth. How's it working out so far? Well, how about the highest number of overdose calls to police and paramedics in a 30-day period ever? That happened last month. What about on March 22nd? Highest number of overdose calls in a single day, 205 overdoses. Let's discuss now with my guest, Kevin Falcon, leader of the BC United in the BC legislature. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Well, thanks very much for having me, Mike. Okay, first of all, the clip that we just played, we're talking about a story of, of a mom and her daughter found a bag of fentanyl on the school playground in Nanaimo this week. Your thoughts? Well, you know, this is, um, this is really unfortunate because what's been happening is we've been warning the NDP that, you know, as they plunge down this path of decriminalization without having proper guardrails in place, we now have a situation where municipalities are being forced to try and bring in their own bylaws to say, hey, you know what, you, you can't openly use drugs in playgrounds, beaches and parks. And the NDP, believe it or not, is pushing back and saying, no, 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 we don't want you passing those bylaws. There's a health element there and, and, uh, and therefore you can't do that. In fact, they've, uh, they've actually written to these, many of these municipalities saying, we want you to wait six months so we can sort of see how things go. And, you know, frankly, Mike, you pointed it out quite well. I mean, March was just a literally a terrible month in the city of yeah. Vancouver. 19 days in a row with over 100 overdoses. 19 days in a row every day. I mean, wow. you know, this I, I just cannot understand why a government would continue to double down on this approach they're taking when the results keep getting worse and worse. Okay, well, do you regret supporting it now? The, the Liberals, the former name of your party, you guys supported decriminalization. Do you regret that now? No, no, be careful about that, Mike, because this oh. is what the NDP are trying to say. So what we did was the NDP were the ones that uh, ran on a platform in 2020. That was part of their platform. Uh, they yeah. went to the federal government. They asked for and got the exemption to allow decriminalization. Right. Uh, we had a health committee, and on the health committee, the recommendation was that uh, if government is going to pursue uh, decriminalization to make sure that protections were in place. In fact, it was very specific on page 48. It said committee members recognize that there is preliminary, preliminary work that must be done to support the implementation of decriminalization. So we were skeptical, but we were open to allowing it to happen with the proper safeguards in place. Okay, so you support, it, you support it in principle, but you're saying that they haven't brought in the safeguards. So now you're Absolutely. against it. Is that Absolutely. so? So, what do you think they should do now? Cancel it? Make these drugs illegal again? No, no, no. But here's the problem, Mike, and this is really important for your listeners to understand. So, let's use Vancouver as an example. 
In Vancouver right now, you've got, uh, you know, bylaws that govern your ability. You can't, you know, drink alcohol on the beaches or in playgrounds. You you can't uh, smoke cigarettes in, in those same places. You can't even use plastic straws, for goodness sakes. However, uh, there is nothing to stop somebody going in and sitting down next to a family on a beach and pulling out their drug paraphernalia and start, uh, you know, taking, using drugs. And the police have no ability now because it's been decriminalized to be able to go in there and say, whoa, 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 stop, you know, move along, anything like that. And so what the municipalities are doing is trying to fill the gap by passing bylaws to say no open drug use in parks, playgrounds and beaches. But unfortunately, they're getting pushback from the provincial government saying, no, we don't want you doing that. Okay, Kamloops, the latest city to draft a bylaw here to ban drug use in public spaces. We've seen other cities do it, as you mentioned, Campbell River on the island. There are lots of indication that other B.C. cities are considering doing the same thing. Uh, This came up in question period this week. Let's listen to the minister responsible here, then I'll get your thoughts. This is Mental Health and Addictions Minister Jennifer Whiteside responding to questions from you this week. Let's listen. We'll continue to meet uh, to meet with municipalities to, to address concerns and want to remind British Columbians that the support that every single party in this house gave to the suite of measures, including de- decriminalization. Okay, your thoughts. She says she's working. She's working with municipalities here to work this out. Your thoughts? Well, they always say this. I mean, you know, I can tell you when you talk to the municipalities, they don't believe anyone's working with them. What they're getting is letters from the health authorities saying, uh, do not proceed with your attempts to try and control uh, open drug use on playgrounds, parks and beaches. We want you to hold off in doing that. That's not working with them. That's telling them uh, that they can't protect their own families and children from, you know, a, a lot of the stuff taking place. And look, I, to me, it's so common sense. This is one of the guardrails that we warned them about, that you have to make sure that there is a, a cross-province guardrail that says, uh, that you, in spite of decriminalization, there will not be open drug use tolerated on beaches yeah. and in parks and in playgrounds. This is not complex, but for whatever reason, uh, they just continue to fight against uh, any kind of reasonable uh, controls over drug use. Let me ask you about another topic here, and that's the crime involving small business. And we see a lot of small businesses have experienced broken windows, graffiti, violent shoplifting, and they're suffering a lot of economic and business losses as a result. In Victoria, we saw this unbelievable video of a guy going into a jewelry store, wielding a hammer, smashing display cases, got away with a, a Rolex watch. He, that guy cased the joint for sure. He knew exactly what he was going for there, terrifying the employees there, one of whom tried to stop him with a chair, almost looked like a lion tamer trying to hold him back. Let's listen to Jeff Bray here downtown victoria business association he says the government should compensate these businesses for crime losses let's have a listen then i'll get your thoughts we certainly think that uh you know a six million dollar pool that would be spread throughout um you know main streets and downtowns throughout the province would make a huge difference uh again for small and medium-sized businesses that do not have the deep pockets but are feeling the impacts of some of these policies that are provincial in nature Okay, so he says $6 million should be put up for businesses who are suffering these crime losses. Do you support that? Uh, I do. As a matter of fact, the uh, Business Improvement Association, they've got a a sort of a provincial association of all the different BIAs, and they've been calling for dollars to help deal with the externalities, I call them. These are the things that they're not in control of. So they're already struggling enough in many of the downtown business cores, whether it's in Terrace or Prince George or Vancouver or Victoria. Uh, 
And what we're saying is provide a grant so that they can help deal with the broken glass, the graffiti, removing human feces and cleaning up drug needles, et cetera. And I think it's important, Mike, to point out that this, these problems, these externalities are a direct result of government policy. This is David Eby when he was Attorney General and Minister of Housing saying, we are going to warehouse severely mentally ill and addicted folks into downtown motels that we purchase without proper support. And that chaos is spilling out into the street. Why, why should and, taxpayers pay pay for that? Like, you know, when the Liberals were in power, there was crime too. And taxpayers are already getting dinged enough. Why should they be required to pay for business losses for crime that taxpayers, have, they have nothing to do with it? So, first of all, uh, there was never anywhere close to the level and extent of crime and total social disorder and chaos that we're seeing now after six years of NDP government. So let's be really clear about that. And the occasional broken glass or robbery that would happen was covered by insurance. The problem is many of these small businesses now cannot even get insurance because they've had their windows broken so many times. And this is a direct result of provincial government policy. And therefore, the government at very least ought to provide some dollars to help clean up a lot of the mess that they are causing for these businesses. Because if we don't, we're not going to have any of these small businesses. They're they're all going to give up and pack up and leave. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Mike. I appreciate having the opportunity. All right, here we go now with the police crackdown on speeding. Now, here's a question for you. Do you think the police crack down harder on speeding in other jurisdictions outside of British Columbia? I'm talking notably Alberta and also in Washington State. Last time I got a speeding ticket, it was many several years ago. But it was in Washington State, man. They got those state troopers down there. They don't fool around. And I think they've got more speed traps down there, too. I'll tell you that story in a minute here. But check out Next Door in Alberta. Some people think that you are more likely to get a speeding ticket across the border in Alberta than you are here in British Columbia. Have a listen to this report here. Now, this is a, a guy from British Columbia driving his Porsche, Kelowna driver, across the border in Alberta, driving his Porsche. Let's just say he was going pretty darn quick. Have a listen to this report. You're going to hear Sergeant Darren Turnbull here from Alberta RCMP Traffic Enforcement. Officers spotted a white sports car speeding on the Trans-Canada Highway near Hermitage Road. The Porsche 911 was going 270 kilometers an hour in the 110 zone. The RCMP says there's no excuse for driving that fast. Yeah, extremely dangerous. Um, even in a sports car, you know, a high-end sports car like the Porsche 911, um, 270 kilometers per hour on a public roadway that designed and engineered for a maximum speed limit of 110 kilometers per hour. It's a disaster waiting to happen. Okay, 270 clicks an hour in a 110 zone. As a BC driver, he got caught in Alberta. Now, presumably, you're going that fast on our side of the border to catch you, too. That's outrageous. Let's check in with Grant Gottgetrue now. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He is now a forensic consultant on traffic violations. ForensicTrafficPro.com. Hi, Grant. Good morning, as always, Mike. Thank you for coming on today. Okay, 270 kilometers an hour in this guy's Porsche. What do you think of that? 
Well, the, the, the officer forgot to say alleged. Allegedly going that fast until it's oh. proven in court. It's just okay. an allegation, right? All right. Uh, okay. So just just be aware of that because uh, I've, I've attended court on matters as a consultant where the evidence did not even remotely meet what the alleg- well, allegation Well, Well, what, what if they got him on a radar gun? Isn't that, isn't that going to stand up in court? Oh, my gosh. You know, that, that's a whole nother topic. That, that, that would take up a whole half an hour to, 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 <laughs> to, uh, to discuss the, the issues with lasers and radars. But anyways, um, still too fast, obviously, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, okay, so let's talk about B.C. compared to some of these other jurisdictions. Because this is a B.C. driver. He gets rung up on this speeding charge in Alberta. Have a listen to Paul Doroshenko on yesterday's show here friend of yours. I know he's a, he's a traffic lawyer. Now, he thinks that if you are speeding, if you're putting your foot down, you are more likely to get caught speeding outside of our province. Here's what he had to say to me yesterday. I'll get your thoughts. Paul Doroshenko. If you're in Alberta, you're going to get pulled over if you're speeding. Uh, if you're in BC, you can drive 15, 18 kilometers an hour over the speed limit, and you're never going to get a, a speeding ticket in most of BC. Oh. So it's just, there's so little enforcement. Well, there's just little enforcement. We just don't have the police officers out there. We don't put the emphasis okay. on traffic enforcement that we do in other jurisdictions in this country. Okay, so he says that you're more likely to get stopped for speeding in Alberta. Do you think that's true? I think it's more likely Washington State. Yeah. <laughs> that was my yeah. last speeding ticket a couple of years ago. Oh, <laughs> me too. Yeah. I know, I heard you say that at the, at the opening. Yeah. Um, well, we've talked about this before where there's uh, discretion for the officers for how fast they're going to let someone go over the speed limit. If we stopped everyone, if the police stopped everyone for doing 10 or 15 kilometers over the speed limit on a highway, well, you know, you'd have a a thousand tickets in 25 minutes. And, and, you know, because there's the natural, people generally go about 10 K over the speed limit anyways. And again, we can talk about, you know, uh, you know, artificially lower speed limits and whatnot. But if you look at Alberta, for example, their highest fine for speeding is $991. Whoa. Okay. Right? How, did, how, and, does that, how does that compare to BC? Well, BC, it's 483 You can only write yeah. a speeding ticket in, in BC for $483. That's the max. Whereas in Alberta, you can go as high as uh, uh, $991. And in Washington State, if you're going more than 35 miles per hour over the speed limit that's a 423 dollar fine well that's 423 american which is about 22 million canadian i guess i don't know <laughs> awful right now but so and the tolerance in washington state is much lower yeah uh like in some cases it's a, it, on, on some of their highways it's as it's as low as as about 14 kilometers over the speed limit but they yeah. also have much higher speed limits in the states where you have some highways that are 80 mile an hour. Okay, I'll tell you a quick story here about me and my buddy. We were driving through Washington State. This is going back a few years. We're on a little road trip here, driving along. We did not want to get a speeding ticket, so we were being cautious here. We were not we we're not speeding, so we're going along. So it was 55 miles an hour. It was the limit on this highway we were on. We're tr- trucking along here. Police officer pulls us over, and he comes up to the window. Now, my buddy was driving, okay? He comes up to the window. The police officer says, do you know how fast you were going? My buddy said, yes. He says, well, how fast? He says, 55 miles an hour. 
Police officer says, yes, that's correct. Unfortunately, this is a 30 mile an hour zone. <laughs> and we're like, what are you talking about? And he's, it's 55 along here. And he goes, not in the stretch you just went through. That is like some unincorporated municipality back there. And yeah. it's a lower speed limit. And we go, are you kidding me? Where is the sign? He goes, there is a sign there. I don't know how big this sign was, but it might, it might, I don't know. He's Anyway, he rung us up on a major ticket. I mean, do you think, like, to me, that was a speed trap. What do you think? Well, I guess it depends on, on the the geography of the area suddenly you're in a you're in a rural town where the speed limit goes down and there's houses there and driveways and whatnot but if it's just an arbitrary just slow down for a little stretch because who knows whatever reason and i do a lot of riding in the states on my motorcycle so you really have to be aware of those signs especially when you're coming into a small unincorporated area you can guarantee the speed limit's going to go down okay are there lots of speed traps in british columbia like places where police officers will set up at a speed limit interchange or the bottom of a hill you know like a little fishing hole where police can easily rack up a lot of tickets is that does that happen in bc well i think that most of your hardcore traffic officers have their have their favorite spots to go to um for one reason or another i enjoyed doing school zones and playground zones uh, when I was at Ursu, uh, that type of thing. But part of the problem, Mike, I was at the, the Integrated Road Safety Unit from 2013 until 2017. And for some particular reason, and I've mentioned this on your show before, the higher-ups in RCMP land in that, in, in, in that section uh, were anti-speed enforcement. They didn't want us doing speed enforcement, which hmm. boggled my brain. It's like, what are you talking about? Speed kills. Speed is the number one killer hmm. in traffic collisions. It's not, you know, it's all about velocity. I'm a, I'm a collision analyst. The faster you're going, the more likely you're going to be killed. It's just like, you know, you've got the, the safest cars in the world are what? Like NASCAR and F1. Well, those drivers get killed too. Why? Because they're going so fast. Yeah. So for me, it was perplexing. And, and a lot of that stemmed from about 20 years ago when E-Division Traffic started promoting these managers, these white shirts that had no traffic background. They didn't understand it. It would be like putting me, when I was in traffic, in charge of a drug squad. I don't know anything about drugs, right? right? And it started to go downhill after that. And suddenly it's like, we don't don't want you doing speed enforcement anymore. Say, pardon me? Interesting. So do you think that there is a, a lack of enforcement in BC to this day that they, that they enforce, they, they enforce more aggressively in other jurisdictions? Well, I spend a lot of time in traffic court as, uh, in my current capacity yeah. uh, with a lot of different lawyers and some jurisdictions have heavy enforcement. For example, Vancouver, Vancouver do an excellent job of traffic enforcement because they have 40 dedicated traffic officers and they each have their own motorcycle. But they're also not handcuffed. The bosses don't tell them, oh, you can only do this. I mean, give me, you know, this is, this is a head shaker. When I was at Ursu, the bosses wanted a certain percentage. We want 10% tickets here, 10% tickets written for cell phones, 10% written. Well, I'm not going to get out a calculator and micromanage my guys. Hmm. Oh, you only wrote 8% this month of, of intersections. 
right? Hmm. So it, it was kind of a the, the the changing in the RCMP for E Division traffic to me was perplexing. There are a lot of really good traffic enforcement officers out there in the province, both municipal and and federal. That being the city cops and the Mounties. Yeah. But I think for the lion's share of it, the Mounties are really handcuffed with wanting to do the, the enforcement they want to do because they're getting pressure from up above. Oh, no, you have to do this, not that. Okay. And the other problem with some of the other municipal forces, other than Vancouver, so all of your other jurisdictions, West Van, Port Moody, Delta, New West, the first place that they pull from to backfill patrol division is traffic. So you're not getting the amount of, so uh-huh. if you're in traffic, be guaranteed that at some point you're going to have to be pulled out of traffic to backfill patrol. So now you're not doing your traffic enforcement. Lots of calls on speeding. Let's get right at it here. Thomas in Maple Ridge. Hi, Thomas. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Um, yeah, around 2012-13, I got caught uh, doing 159 kilometers an hour. Um, I was I was passing a semi, and I came over the crest of a hill, and I came around a little corner. And there was a couple of cars coming the other way. And I thought, you know what, that might be a cop. So I let my foot off the gas and he clocked me at 159. He turned around and on the, on the highway and he, he came over and he, he, uh, he threw a ticket in, in my uh, window, in the window. He, he didn't ask me for my driver's license or nothing. He says, you're going to court. And that's the end of it. You're a moron. That's exactly what he said. So what I did is is I phoned this thing in Alberta. They have fight a ticket. It's a couple of uh, retired police officers that fight these tickets for you. And I never had to go to court. I had to pay $1,250 to the fight a ticket guy. And he reduced it to 134 kilometers an hour. And I paid a $500 fine. Holy smoke. So so you ended up okay, so you paid twelve hundred and fifty bucks to the fight a ticket guy and then you paid a five hundred dollar fine on top of that? Yep. Oh man, this was expensive proposition. how much was the fine in the first place? What if you had just pleaded guilty to them just paid the fine? How much would it cost you? I was looking at probably twenty five hundred dollars. What? Really? Twenty five hundred. Why so much? Well, because what had happened was that at that particular time in Alberta, there was a there was a major accident on the highway, and five people were killed. So they brought in this new legislation like right away. They brought it in, and they were really cracking down on speeders. So, so this happened in Alberta. Yes. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you for the call, Grant. What do you think of that story? Well, in Alberta, if you're going more than fifty-one kilometers over the speed limit, it's a mandatory mandatory court appearance and at that point the the court the courts have the discretion to raise the fines even higher i mean in bc they can go as high as two thousand dollars um so yeah wow okay that's that is very interesting story al and langley hi al go ahead uh good morning uh mine is more of a comical thing not related to bc alberta or washington but during, uh, I think when the first Gulf War started, I was going to visit my parents in Palm Springs, and I took 395, which basically takes you through the desert, and uh, the upper part of the desert before you get in, drop into Palm Springs. Yeah. And I came over this hill, 
And I went, whoa, I had a little Nissan Pulsar with a 73 horsepower engine, and I figured, that this is my one chance I'll be able to get this car to go 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and I ripped down this hill, yeah. and lo and behold, I went by this sign, and out comes this police officer. There was nothing in sight for miles. Oh. And he pulled me over, and he says, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> do you have any idea how fast you're going? I said, yeah, pretty much. If you were doing 93, what were you trying to do? I said, well, so I explained that it was my one chance to get the car to go this fast. And he just started laughing. He says, well, he said, I'm really going to do you a favor. I'm going to give you a break. He said, if I ticket you, it's a long weekend. You would have to go down to Four Corners, I think it was, get a hotel room. We'd have to impound your car. You'd have to see a judge on Monday. And it's going to cost you a lot of money. He says, I'm not even going to give you a warning. I'm just going to tell you to slow down and enjoy your trip. Wow. I was from the Yukon, and I had Yukon plates, so I definitely had an angel sitting on my shoulder that day. Okay, Al, thank you for that story. You really caught a break there, for sure. Does that happen very often, Grant? Like, when you were a traffic police officer, did you ever let people off with a warning? Just got a minute left here. There were a few times, yeah, for sure, but that sounds like he was more likely pulled over by a general duty member, not a traffic member. <laughs> why, why do you say that? Uh, because the traffic cop is going to impound you or, or ticket you if you're going almost that 160 fast. kilometers an hour. Of course. Well, sure. yeah. Now, now, while now while you know, I'm sure some of the white shirts out there in the police world are jumping up and down things that I'm saying, and they're saying, "Well, the stats show this, and the stats show that." And say, "Yeah, well, you can make the stats show whatever you want." Grant, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, and have yourself a great weekend. All right, let's talk about this blockbuster deal here between the federal government and automaker Volkswagen. So $13 billion in federal subsidies here to the German automaker to bring an electric vehicle battery plant to Ontario. So this electric vehicle battery factory to be built in St. Thomas, Ontario, uh, it will employ 3,000 workers, production expected to begin in 2027. The federal government here, what a sweet deal. Wow, $13 billion in subsidies to Volkswagen to make this happen. Now, some people are criticizing this as being too generous to the automaker, but the federal government saying, look, we were in basically in a bidding war here with the Americans, and this what this is what had to be done to get these jobs, to get this factory. Got Flavio Volpe standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen here to the Federal Finance Minister, Christy Freeland. It means ensuring that Canada, which is a major car-producing country today, continues to be a car-producing country as we move to electric vehicles. Okay, that's the finance minister. Don't forget about those very aggressive targets here in Canada for electric vehicle sales in the country. Wow, what a major deal this is. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Flavio Volpe, President, Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Flavio, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me on. I just left uh, the announcement, and it is a it's a blockbuster, but it's also a community builder. And uh, we talk about up to 13 billion. Uh, and a lot of people are dividing that by 3000 jobs or the 30,000 spinoffs. It's not yeah. really how we hand out money in this country. You know, if, if, if all it was, was a job count, then 
you know, put together $50 million. Let's give uh, a million people access and we can all be lumberjacks. What, what, what's happening here is this company is going to make a million batteries a year. They're $25,000 each. There is a $200 billion output that comes from this investment. And the money from the feds does not flow up front. It flows in part after every year. You make the batteries, you've employed the people, we see the factory, do your filings this year. Oh, you qualify for X amount, this is when you get it. And so it's it's not a cash on the barrel uh, deal like when uh, when we bailed out GM and Chrysler uh, who needed emergency cash flow in 2009. And that was a great deal. We needed to save the sector then. This is, this is a pretty big carrot, uh, but it's for yeah. the most advanced product for the biggest car company in the world. And... I love it. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. I know you're a big supporter of this, and uh, yeah. it, it, talk about some of the criticism of it, though. Like you mentioned, that some people are dividing the number of jobs by the amount of money in subsidies here, and saying, "Whoa, this is a lot of money here for these jobs." Also, people looking at the price tag to build this factory. So apparently, what it's a seven billion dollar price tag to build the actual factory. Why do we have to yeah. give them thirteen? Why do we have to give them thirteen billion bucks in subsidies to build a seven billion dollar factory? Well, the, so this is the way the numbers break down. It's a seven billion dollar right. factory, and there's one point two billion dollars in subsidies. That's that's about the going rate, probably a little bit less uh, than for every other automotive investment around the world. So either either you want to be in the automotive business, you can choose not to be. But if you want to be in the big leagues, there's that's the franchise fee. The yeah. rest of eight to thirteen billion is we will uh, pay back on production. The, the, the way the numbers work here is the return on investment is five years. You know, people like to talk about, oh, here's the big number, and then this is the number of jobs. Well, if that was the way that you calculate return on investment, construction companies, development companies wouldn't build houses. Uh, nobody would build roads. And there would be no tech companies. What that money goes into is capital that creates a product that then that product gets taxed. You know, this is a... This is a this is an, a facility and investment that's going to generate twenty five billion dollars to forty billion dollars in net tax revenues through its first twenty years. That goes back into the economy across the economy, so that it pays for the right. types of jobs that have no return, like hospital jobs. You want to go to the mm -hmm. hospital? There's no return on investment at the hospital. How do we pay for that? We pay for that with investments like this that generate the money that 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 funds a sophisticated, advanced, modern society. Okay, Flavio, can you tell me a little bit about the spin-off effects here and the economic impact outside of Ontario? Because, you know, we're all Canadian taxpayers here. There are taxpayers in BC. Wow, this is 13 billion bucks of, of my money to create jobs in Ontario. Will there be a benefit for the rest of the country? Yeah, it's twofold. There's a lot of critical minerals that need to be uh, uh, mined to put into the batteries, the cells that go into batteries. Those minerals are in the ground across the country, uh, mostly Quebec and out west. Uh, there is uh, th these batteries and these cars go from being 40 volt platforms to 800 volt platforms, which means they're connected and autonomous. A lot of the technology, uh, applied technology, as far as AI goes across this country. One of the biggest nodes in AI is is uh, is Edmonton, and I don't think the people know that. Uh, and then uh, the types of 
uh, federal taxes that get raised here get invested across the country uh, where they're required. And, you know, I've always said there has to be a real balance here. If we're going to force companies to electrify, which means they're going to have to, they're going to get off the the natural resources that have uh, paid for a lot of this economy uh, that come from out west, we've got to help transition those people and those provinces. Well, what you do is you take this revenue that comes uh, in through Ontario and then you spend it back across the country. It's okay. great that it's a federal, it's a federal tax so that it doesn't just get respent in Ontario. Okay, speaking to Flavio Volpe, Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, $13 billion in subsidies for Volkswagen on this battery plant. Now, as you know, there there is criticism that this is too generous to this company. Uh, the federal government, and like you said, you say that this is, this is the cost of playing in the big leagues here. The government is saying that there were other competing jurisdictions were also off, offering generous subsidies to this company. And this is just the, the price of getting this, this, uh, this factory. Let me play a clip here for you, though, from one of the critics here, Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He thinks this is a bad deal for taxpayers. Here's what he has to say, then I'll get your thoughts. Respectfully, if the United States wants to dole out corporate welfare to multinational corporations, we should say, fill your boots. But we should not uh, engage in a battle of who can waste more taxpayers' money. Lavio, what do you say to him? I mean, I think Franco's doing what he's supposed to do for the people who pay him, uh, even if uh, most of it is bullshit. You know, in the end, uh, it's the same thing. Should we subsidize the resource companies that build the economies of the West? Never hear a complaint out of me. You, You have to invest in an economy to get a return from the economy. And if the biggest, best economies in the world are investing in the biggest and best companies and technology in the world, maybe there's something in those best practices. I mean, if you want to get a media hit every time somebody does a government investment, go and work at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. The rest of us are making things that pay for mortgages and food on people's table. Okay. Speaking of making things, let's talk a little bit about these uh, electric vehicle sales targets in Canada, because one of the reasons that we want to build this factory, the government says, is, look, we're electrifying vehicles in our country. We have very aggressive targets here for electric vehicle sales, uh, six, 60% by 2030, 100% electric, new electric vehicle sales in Canada by 2035. That is the official target. Let's here's Justin Trudeau talking about it. And then and then Flavia, I want to ask you if this is if this is reality, if this is realistic to hit these targets. Here's the Prime Minister. We're moving forward with specific targets of 20% electric vehicles for all new sales uh, in uh, in 2026. 60% by 2030 and 100% by 2035 and with the kind of demand and the kind of solutions being brought forward by the auto industry, uh, it would surprise. It wouldn't surprise me for us to reach some of those targets ahead of time. Okay, Flavia, I know you've expressed some uh, skepticism about whether these targets can be hit. If we, if VW comes here and starts making all these electric vehicle batteries, is it possible to hit these targets now? Those are two separate issues. I don't think the targets are are going to be realistically hit in the Canadian market unless we address charging infrastructure, especially for people who have street parking or they live in apartments, condos, uh, townhouses. I don't know where they're going to uh, charge. So, and we've got to do that very, very quickly. And then, where are we are we going to process the lithium and the other minerals fast enough to make those batteries for Canada? The VW investment 
is geared for the U.S. market. And they okay. make 1.25 million cars in the U.S. And the U.S. federal government said, we will spend all the money we need to get to 67 by 2032. So the, the answer on uh, VW is, is Washington serious? Uh, let's see. I mean, I think those are overly aggressive numbers, but I'm very glad that those companies are betting on us as the best place to reach it. Hey, Flavio, last question for you. Do you think that if Canada had not put this money up, $13 billion, for Volkswagen to come here and build this factory, would we be kissing off this this investment? Like, you know, if Canada called their bluff and said, no, we're not going to give you that much money, do you think they would have come here anyway, or would they have would they have set up this factory somewhere else? They 100% would not have come here because they have the in the U.S., the Inflation Reduction Act has a battery tax credit for $4,400 for every battery they make in the U.S. It was a lo- more lucrative deal in the U.S. If we said, hey, by the way, uh, we're not going to play. I guarantee you we wouldn't have gotten in at bat. And then you would have me on and everybody else would have me on to say, look, what happened? It went to Michigan. Is Canada uh, not competitive? And so we just decided to get take our at bat and try to hit a ball in a gap. And we did here. Okay. We're following it very closely. Thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate it a lot. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.